I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 11th, 2022. Coming up, we talk with author Kristen Olson about her recent book, Sweet, in Tooth and Claw. Olson examines cooperative relationships found in the natural world and in human civilization. It's a view missing because of Darwin's survival of the fittest idea. As you'll learn this morning from Sweet in Tooth and Claw, there is another and possibly a better way. And we'll begin with a look at the science calendar. This Thursday, October 13th, starting at 5.30 p.m., will be the Teen Science Cafe, sponsored by the University of Colorado Science Discovery Program. The speakers will be Dr. Gabriel Rodriguez and Dr. Hannah Zlotnick of CU Boulder's BioFrontiers Institute. They will talk about materials to treat diseases and heal. Scientists can design tissues and then grow them from scratch in a lab, and tissue engineering is used to create parts that restore, maintain, or even improve tissue function or a whole organ. At this month's cafe, you can learn how hydrogels can be used to design new ways of repairing our hearts and our joints. That Teen Science Cafe is this Thursday, October 13th, starting at 5.30 p.m. at the Lafayette Public Library on 775 West Baseline Road. These teen monthly Teen Science Cafe events are a great way to learn about new areas of science you may not have been exposed to. The point is to have fun, meet like-minded people, and talk about something cool. Cafes are interactive and informal and are for high school students, grades 9 through 12. For more information and to RSVP for the cafe, search online for Science Discovery Teen Science Cafe. And Joel, another event this week, author Kristen Olson will be at the Patagonia store on Pearl Street in Boulder this Thursday, October 13th at 6 p.m. There she'll discuss this new book, Sweet in Tooth and Claw, with Outside Magazine correspondent Tracy Ross. For more information and to RSVP for this event, go to patagonia.com forward slash boulder and scroll down to the events section. In today's How on Earth feature, Benita Lee will talk with Kristen Olson about her book, Sweet in Tooth and Claw. It's a marvelous book, Joel. We've gotten a sneak preview by listening we to have, it in advance. And it's great. It is really good. And um and it's such a good paradigm shift based on the fact that here we have a world where where we still have wars where people beat up on each other and sweet and tooth and claw is a whole other way to look at things. It is. It's it's more cooperative than you may think. It is. And just like, you know, it's cooperative when we're here as volunteers for the science show and you're there as a listener who has the opportunity to cooperate and make a mutual 
creation of a science show by calling in and pledging your support. And by the way, we have a limited number of copies of this book. And I'm going to give you a chance to get one before I do as part of my cooperation. <laughs> such as you a deal. It. it is such a deal. We have copies of this book for new and renewing members at the 88.5 pledge level. And I think that you have to call 303-449-4885 to get it or kgnu.org. That's right. I better stop you talking can, about this you and can, let him You can listen. do it online. You can do it on the phone. We have many avenues because we're cooperative. <laughs> we kind of are. And really, this is a neat interview from our friend and fellow volunteer, Benita Lee. Oh, let's just go to it now. Can you tell me about the title of the book and how it describes the stories that you tell? Well, when I was first kind of stumbling upon this idea of writing about cooperation in nature, early on, I talked to this one scientist who said, you know, scientists really aren't looking for that in their research. They're still very focused on the the idea of competition among species. So I really wanted to look at scientists who were going in a different direction, looking at the cooperative relationships, the helping relationships that exist in nature. And it occurred to me that there are just these ideas that float around about what nature is like. And one of them is red in tooth and claw. And that's a line from a poem by Tennyson that he published 150 years ago. And it's a very, very long poem. I don't think any of the other lines of the poem have stayed with us the way that one has. And I think to grow and develop as a species, to survive all these millennia, we had to be careful. We had to be on the alert for danger. But then we we culminated in this view that everything is all competition, everything is all conflict, and we're missing the connective tissue, which is that we cooperate all the time. Every part of our bodies is cooperating all the time. Ecosystems are held together by things cooperating all the time. So I was sitting there thinking, oh, we have all these bad ideas about cooperation versus competition in nature. And I thought, no, it's not red and tooth and claw. It's sweet, sweet and tooth and claw. This research that you did, did it affect your view of Darwinism, which does talk about competition? It gave me a better understanding of Darwin. I mean, his ideas were influenced by the ideas that are floating around at the time. And he was influenced by Thomas Malthus and he read Malthus and Malthus was a wealthy pastor who wrote about how the resources of the world were never going to keep up with the growth in human population and that there would be scarcity and there would be failure for some people to thrive and that that was sort of okay because that balanced out society. And Darwin read Malthus and that gave him this this construct of competition weeding out those that were weaker, not as fit. He didn't come up with the phrase survival of the fittest. That was Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer came up with that from reading Darwin. And then Darwin later did use that phrase in one of his later editions of Origin of Species. So it gave me an idea of culture affects science and the way science phrases things, and then how science affects culture by the way science phrases things. So I think the, the phrasing from science for a long time has been competition. That's the architect of the life that we see around us. And certainly there is competition 
but there would be no complex organisms if it weren't for cooperation. And you also wrote the book, The Soil Will Save Us, and it follows a similar line of thought around how humans tend to view the natural world and how we might want to shift that view to address climate change. So I was wondering if you noticed echoes of ideas and facts coming from the book about soil as you were researching and writing Sweet in Tooth and Claw. Yeah, I mean, I very much see Sweet in Tooth and Claw sort of following in the footsteps of the soil will save us. I think the thing that excited me the most about writing The Soil Will Save Us was that I that I got to talk to all these amazing scientists and farmers and ranchers and activists who were figuring out how to raise food without destroying landscapes. But, you know, one of the things that just hit me like a lightning bolt when I was working on that book was this idea of plants being an ecosystem and plants having this cooperative relationship with the microorganisms that live in the soil and that in a natural state, that's how plants get fertilized. That's how plants warn each other that there might be a pest outbreak. That's how plants tell the soil microorganisms that they might need water, that they might need a certain nutrient. So that idea of a plant being both a giver and a taker, and probably everything being both a giver and a taker, was certainly something that I wanted to build upon when I started this book. So that was the interview, part one, of Kristen Olson about her book, Sweet in Tooth and Claw. And I'm holding a physical copy of the book here. I actually have not had a chance to see this book. This is one of those precious copies that will go away with a pledge of 88.5. That's $88.50 because this is a beautiful book. It's a hardback book with uh, beautiful pictures in it. It's, and, it's true. It has pictures in it. It is a book that you would might like to hold in your hand, and you can do that by calling kgnu.org. You're here with, I'm Shelley Schlender, and I'm here with Joel Parker, and we're part of the volunteer team that makes the science show possible. It's part of our giving to the station, um, giving to you, our listeners, and giving to ourselves the chance to learn more about science and share it with people. And what you can do by giving to KGNU, uh, you can take away this book. You can. And I just love looking at the chapters here. Uh, one of the chapters is, we need better metaphors. And I think I, I can believe that. I think there's oh, a do. lot to be said about that. Uh, we are ecosystems. Uh, I'll take my coffee with birds. You know, and each chapter has, you know, a beautiful, unique view talking about the cooperation that we see in nature as opposed to the Darwinian competition that we're all so familiar with. Yes. So so now let's go back to this interview where, among other things, you're going to hear about the amazing reason why coral bleaches and what might be able to be done about them. It involves a mutual relationship between coral and this little tiny creature. I'm not going to tell you what the creature is. Well, let's go ahead and listen. And let's hear about mutualism.
Your book is centered on the idea of mutualism. Can you please describe what that means and give examples of how we might find it in the world? So mutualism is a mutually beneficial relationship among two or more species. So the most obvious one, the one that people see you know, that I hope everybody sees every day is the mutualistic relationship between bees and flowers. So flowers produce nectar to attract bees and the bees come there and they get some nectar. And in that process, they get their fuzzy little bodies covered with pollen. And then they go around to other plants still collecting and they move that pollen around. And in that process, they are fertilizing the plants so that the plants can fruit, bear seed, make flowers, all that. But mutualisms are in every ecosystem and probably every organism has many, many mutualisms. So one of the ones that was super fascinating to me was coral. We read about coral reefs bleaching under extreme circumstances. So the coral is a a tiny little animal. When it's first ejected into seawater as a tiny baby, it swallows an alga, but it doesn't consume that alga. That alga lives inside the little coral animal and they become mutualistic partners. The alga photosynthesizes. That's why coral reefs are in sort of sunny waters that alga photosynthesizes and makes a carbon fuel, a carbon sugar for the tiny little coral animal. And the tiny little coral animal provides protection to the alga and provides other things to it too. They live together. Then once they combine in the seawater, they drift down and they attach themselves to a coral reef and there they stay. So what happens when There are conditions that are stressful for the coral, like warming or other things, is that that partnership is broken up. The coral animal spits out the alga, and that's what causes the bleaching. And on a coral reef, I mean, a coral reef is just full of these mutualistic relationships. One of the things that I I learned that coral reefs, they have a, a mucus coat, and the scientists who study it call it coral snot. So in that coral snot, there are billions of of bacteria and fungi and viruses, all sorts of microorganisms. And of course, when people first looked at that coral snot and saw bacteria, they thought, oh no, the coral reef is infected. But no, those bacteria that are there are uh, protecting the coral reef. They are providing it with valuable nutrients. So just everywhere you look, that's what's going on inside our own guts inside our own mouth. You know, we have 700 species of bacteria that live in our mouths and they protect us against illness. They help our skin heal. Those mutualisms are everywhere. Scientists can't look everywhere. I mean, it takes a lot of money and takes a lot of effort to do this work. But basically, I think that anywhere that somebody would look, they would find a mutualistic relationship among two or more partners. So, you know, here in the West, I'm just wondering what systems of mutualism can potentially help mitigate climate-related disasters like wildfires? I didn't look at that specifically. I think that what we need overall, though, is healthier forests and healthier means of harvesting forests. That was what first pulled me into this book and, and into this research was talking to the forest ecologist Suzanne Samard up in British Columbia. She was the researcher who kind of broke it to the world that 
trees in a forest are sort of constantly in communication through the this vast underground network of fungi. So the trees are trading nutrients and water and chemical messages and all of that. So Suzanne Samard is now working on looking at the best ways of taking timber out of a forest like that. I think foresters have always wanted to go in and take out the great big trees and leave the smaller ones to grow. But, you know, her research suggests that those big trees, the longer they've been there, the more relationships within the forest that they have. And they have relationships to many, many more species of fungi because they've been there for such a long time. The oldest trees are connected to a certain species of fungi that only connects to really old trees, and that is a big player in circulating water in the forest system. So a younger, smaller tree might not have that connection that's important for getting water around. You're listening to Benita Lee's interview with Kristen Olson, author of Sweet and Tooth and Claw. It's a book that you can get by pledging your support to KGNU.org or calling us here at 303-449-4885. I'm science show volunteer Shelley Schlender with my science show volunteer fellow host, Joel, <laughs> Joel Parker. Parker. Hello. Yeah. And we're here cooperating mutually to help you hear a marvelous new idea about how to think about nature and the environment. So I've got a question for you as a listener. Do you picture yourself as one of the grandmother trees that sends water into the fungi network to be shared with other forest trees, or in this case, to share your resources with KGNU so that KGNU can afford to send out into the network of radio waves and podcasts and people's conversations their wonderful eclectic music and local news and volunteer-powered programs such as this science show, How such on Earth. How on Earth. Yes, there, there's an interweb, as it were, connecting all of us. And you can, you can send in your donation, your membership through that interweb. <laughs> and be part of changing the metaphor about how we look at the world um, with this wonderful book that is full of beautiful pictures and beautiful things to read and read again. Um, you can get it by going to kgnu.org and pledging there or calling us here at 303-449-4885. And what's, shall we go back to the interview? I, we should, but first I want to thank Tom in Arvada for upgrading his solar membership and a member in Denver. These are people calling in through their connections to support this volunteer-supported radio station, and you can be part of that too, either by calling 303-449-4885 or online at kgnu.org. So next, let us listen to part three about how humans interact with nature. In your research, did you discover anything very hopeful as far as how humans interact with nature? Like, you know, is there anything that we're doing right? Oh, I think there's so many things that we're doing right. I think that we, we tend to think that progress is going to come from some big government program or you know, something like that from the top. And of course, we do want a big government program that gives us the tools and the structure for healing landscapes and ending the reign of fossil fuels. 
Um, but nonetheless, there are grassroots things that are happening everywhere. Farmers making big changes in the way they plant their crops and the way they manage their crops and the way they use chemicals, um, completely changing these horrible, barren, really toxic landscapes, which are most of what industrial agriculture is, into agricultural ecosystems where the soil becomes healthier, where the crop plant is able to really rely on the way nature intended for them to grow with all the nutrients and minerals and inputs from those other plants and the soil microorganisms. Also, these farmers are creating habitat for birds and insects, and they're really doing beautiful things on their land. And boy, they are really great at proselytizing that stuff with YouTube and other means. So that's something that's happening a lot. If we look at our cities, we're tempted to just notice the terrible things that go wrong. Every day in our local newspapers, we see terrible things that have happened that people have done. And it's easy to say, oh my God, our cities are just a mess. We're just falling apart. But the fact is, is that our cities, our neighborhoods, they wouldn't be possible without massive, massive amounts of cooperation. So the chapter that I wrote in the book about ranchers in Nevada who were working with scientists and working with government agency officials and each other to heal a landscape, they very specifically formed an organization to bring together people who usually can't talk to each other, you know, to bring together people who usually get angry or get hurt feelings and make that work so that they could heal this landscape because they all wanted the same thing. So I think that we have to give a nod to the cooperation that exists because it does exist. And we have to also work very hard at talking to each other when it's difficult. I feel really very lucky that I have been able to keep myself busy writing about the people who are doing amazingly good things. I hear you there for sure. <laughs> I think it's unbalanced to our view. I think a lot of the people who are climate skeptics are people who have never been offered any kind of hope that there are ways that we can actually approach it. On our agricultural landscapes, it's nearly 2 billion hectares of grow crops around the world. Right now, an awful lot of those hectares are incredible blights on the landscape, but what an opportunity. With really very simple tools, we can turn those around so that they are soil building, carbon retaining, uh, biodiversity supporting uh, fields. So I don't know if you want to maybe right now, like just read a, a favorite passage. I'm naturally drawn to optimism, which is a gift from my sweet father. I actually worried that I might just be soft headed until I read this quote from activist and Professor Angela Davis. I don't think we have any alternative other than remaining optimistic, she said. Optimism is an absolute necessity, even if it's only optimism of the will and pessimism of the intellect, that's her. But it's hard to hang on to optimism. Like others, probably you, I panic at the growing undeniable evidence of humanity's damage to the natural world around us. And fear will never get our stuff together to do anything about it as our politics and cultures continue to clash in the nastiest of ways. When I wrote my previous book, The Soil Will Save Us, 
I discovered a wellspring of optimism as I met farmers, ranchers, scientists, and others figuring out how to restore damaged agricultural landscapes. But if the world is characterized by greed and grasping and selfishness, as so many people believe, would the growing numbers of ordinary ecological heroes be enough? Then I heard Canadian forest ecologist Suzanne Samard speak at the 2015 Urban Soil Conference in Los Angeles. For the last 30 years, she's been uncovering the hidden cooperation among trees and other living things in the forest. In the process of writing The Soil Will Save Us, I was thrilled to learn about the life-giving partnership between plants and soil microorganisms. Really, it was the greatest of revelations to find out that plants don't just suck nutrients from the soil and leave it as barren of goodness as a Twinkie, but are engaged in a constant give and take with the billions of tiny organisms there. At the conference, Samard talked about this kind of fertile partnership spread out across the forest landscape, powered by a vast underground skein of fungi. I almost levitated from my seat with excitement. Wonderful. Thank you. Your writing is so easy to absorb. It just goes right in. Really wonderful. Good. That was the idea. <laughs> this has been so wonderful. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. That was Kristen Olson, the author of Sweet in Tooth and Claw. And we have her lovely book, Copies Available, for new and renew renewing members at the 88.5 pledge level. That's $88.50. Well, Joel, author Kristen Olson will talk about her book, Sweet and Tooth and Claw, this Thursday, October 13th, starting at 6 p.m. at the Patagonia store at 1630 Pearl Street in Boulder. For more information and to RSVP, go to thepatagonia.com forward slash boulder I'm going to try to say that again. <laughs> Patagonia.com forward slash Boulder and scroll down to the events section. And also we want to thank Patagonia for giving, donating these books thank to you. KGNU and also to Patagonia for donating the fortune of the whole company to help the environment. So we're very happy to support Patagonia. And from what I understand, if you have rips or tears, you can bring it in and get it fixed for free. And if you want to donate a small part of your fortune, not your entire fortune, but a small part to KGNU, please do, do so at kgnu.org or 303-449-4885. The that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Benita Lee. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Lynn Patrick. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Shelley Schlender. 